Resilient Cyber Podcast brings you conversations from diverse cybersecurity professionals, ranging from executives, subject matter experts, and aspiring entrants. Today's diverse threat landscape requires systems that can withstand a variety of cyber incidents, remaining trustworthy and secure. As always, we want to give a special shout out to our season two sponsor, Accurix. That's A-C-C-U-R-I-C-S. Accurix is a infrastructure as code security company, which helps codify security for your cloud native infrastructure by codifying security throughout the development lifecycle. They also manage the popular open source IAC project, TerraScan. Visit them at Accurix.com for more. Thank you for joining us on the Resilient Cyber Podcast. My name is Chris Hughes, along with my co-host, Dr. Nikki Robinson, who's actually not here today. She's an adjunct professor at Capital Technology University, so she's participating in a residency for their doctoral students. But today we have uh, Tracy Bannon from MITRE on the show. Tracy, thanks for being on. Hey, you're welcome. Thanks for the invite. Definitely. And for folks that don't know, you can tell us a bit about your background, You know how you ended up at MITRE and things like that. You bet. You bet. So I'm a software architect. I'm an engineer. I'm hands-on, but I end up doing a lot of additional strategy work. I've been in industry for a long time and spent uh, the last 13, 14 years with Deloitte Consulting and then made my way to MITRE about two years ago. I'm still counting my time there in months like I'm a toddler, so I just hit my terrible twos. MITRE is an FFRDC, if you're not aware of what that is. They are chartered by Congress. It's a really cool opportunity because when you're chartered by Congress, you can't compete with industry. We're chartered to be objective, truly be objective. I don't sell anything. I shoot straight with folks. I go out and do the research. I pull together the academics, the industry folks, and I get to lean in to solve really complex problems. And it's, it's just a joy. Yeah, it's awesome. I'm a huge fan of FFRDCs like, you know, uh, MITRE and, and SEI and others that I've definitely you know shared much of their research from. And I think it's a great part of the overall, you know, federal government ecosystem, to be honest. One topic we know you're extremely passionate about is DevSecOps and government. It's the latest, you know, thing everyone's talking about DevSecOps. What do you think some of the biggest impediments are for widespread government adoption of DevSecOps? Oh, gosh. So total laundry list. Let me distill it down. Probably the first one, the most important one, is a lack of a common definition. Folks are talking past each other, left and right. Acquisition policy, remember the government doesn't write the software themselves. They acquire it. They may lead the delivery with their engineers. They may have senior folks who are monitoring it, but generally they acquire it. So there's a lot of policy there, and that makes it really difficult If I am contracting requirements to one group, like we used to with Waterfall, and another group for my testing, another group for development, and now, even worse, another group for my DevOps pipelines, I've just got a cacophony. It's it's just a mess. The third thing that really makes DevSecOps difficult is muscle memory. Uh, What I'm talking about is there are two groups within the government right now who are highly technical, senior leaders. Then there's a gap and then a lot of excellent early career folks. Well, what that means is that the folks who are coming in and new, well, they're learning and they're picking up pretty quickly. But those who are really in charge often have pretty decent muscle memory for the way things have happened in the past. So when the seas are a little waves are on the seas and you need a hand at the rudder, it's often with somebody who has muscle memory for doing things in a a really traditional way. So I'll throw one more thing in there, though, Chris. 
I don't like the word DevOps and I don't like the word DevSecOps and people like their faces, their eyes get big when I say that. And you know where I'm probably going with this. It's about solving problems with software. And if you're going to solve problems with software, you have to think about architecture. It doesn't need to be big waterfall architecture up front, but you got to think about architecture and engineering. That feeds DevOps as a set of principles and capabilities that are enabling the same way that agility, lowercase a, is enabling. So I, I, I kind of push back on DevSecOps, but I'm, I'm okay saying it because if we get a definition out and people can rally around it, that's going to help us deliver software and solve problems. Yeah, I definitely agree there. A couple of things you said that made me think of uh, some additional comments or questions. You talked about the senior you know, acquisition folks and senior leaders that often oversee these kind of activities, right? There's obviously been a, whole, a high profile individual who made some pretty you know, sharp comments in this regard in terms of how we put individuals who are not technical or don't know technology very well in charge of these kind of efforts that these massive technology modernization efforts. Do you think that that's a true concern or what are your thoughts around that? It is a concern. Does it happen all the time? No. Does it happen? Yes. I mean, it actually goes back to policy. Unfortunately, I'd have to Google and find what the the catalyst moment was that started this. But uh, maybe two decades ago, there was some type of situation where somebody who was longstanding as a leader in a PMO wasn't behaving very well, right? You come and kiss the ring, you get the acquisition, you get the additional award. And so there's policy that folks have to switch out. So the fact that you have to switch out every two years, well, that if you're a multi-year project, even if you're delivering nimbly, it takes a long time to get and understand the domain of those really big projects, those really big programs. So that's a piece of it. It's also part of, mm-hmm. in some areas of the government, it's part of the career path progression. The, the next thing you need to do is take on a, a program of X size. So they are assigned they may be given some options, but they are assigned to those and their background may have not been technology. You know, there are a lot of good studies right now that go back and, and look at who are the most successful leaders of technical implementations, business and tech together. And it's generally when that leader has some kind of technical experience, technical delivery experience somewhere in their career. doesn't mean they had to be a hands-on coder for 15 years, but they have to have been close to that for a while until they can really understand and walk a mile right in the shoes of the people who are doing the the work, both business and technology. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, you know, honestly, I think it takes both, like you said, you know, because obviously if someone only does technical work, but they don't understand the business side of things or the organizational objectives you're trying to achieve, there's a disconnect there too. So it can go both ways. Another thing you said to me that made, uh, made me think of something you talked about like the leadership and the steady hand at the at the rudder, right, for a rough sea. Uh, and I'll probably butcher the quote, but there's a quote, you know, like a, sh- a ship in harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. Sometimes I think we see like a risk aversion within DOD or the federal government, you know, when it comes to being uh, open to making change and pursuing innovation and different uh, different efforts that may fail, right? Because that failure could reflect poorly on the leadership and impact their career trajectory or things like that. Uh, any thoughts on, you know, when playing it too safe can be problematic as well? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. So when you said that, I reached over and grabbed a bookmark that I have that was given to me by Kavitha Pravakar. She is head of diversity and inclusion, Jedi, uh, justice, equity for Deloitte. And it says a smooth sea never made a skillful sailor. And so it, it follows with what you're saying. 
Now, there's a culture that exists for a reason, right? There, It's a command and control structure, especially on the defense side of the house. Understandably, right? You're out in the field. You're defending the nation. It's command and control. You've got to be able to have leadership structure and hierarchy in place. But software is not that, right? The second part of that is, depending on the softwares that you're putting out, we've always had a zero defect culture. If you have a zero defect culture and you're doing waterfall, well, all of the constructs that are in place start to make sense. When there's a mistake, you track it back, you have changer boards, you have checklists, and it gets more burdensome and more burdensome. But you now have a concept or mentality that you can never make a mistake. And if you can never make a mistake, you actually can't innovate. What you end up doing is studying the problem from 10 different directions permanently, right? You get into an analysis paralysis. So we're in this interesting dichotomy now. We need to think about how we restructure so that we're not doing command and control when it comes to the software organization. And I'm talking about business and technology aligned. I'm not just talking about tech. It's got to be business and tech aligned, right? That agility has to requires both of them. So the structure needs to change. There does need to be autonomy for individuals. Identify the work to be done, assign or invite the right skill sets and give them the autonomy to solve that problem. Doesn't mean that you've got a bunch of (laughs) junior developers that are figuring out how to fire the next missile alone. What it means is that you have to build trust and get teams together that are a little more long-lived. So all of those things, especially when we talk about the government space, man, what a change that is, right? Right now, you buy a team or you, uh, that does one kind of skill. I don't buy a group and keep them together for a long time. My structure is command and control. It's, it's risk-adverse because it's needed to be risk-adverse. We can deal with risk in different ways. Risk is not a bad thing. It's a motivator. It's a, <laughs> it is something that we should strive to address and to prioritize and to understand. And you know this from the cyber side of it, right? Uh, everything we're talking about applies to software broadly, but it also really specifically applies to the cyber side. Yeah, one comment you made that really jumped out to me right there. She talked about risk is not not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, that's something I've been trying to evangelize on the cyber side because we only look at risk from a negative perspective. But when it comes to innovation and, and you know uh, modernization of, of technology, I think that there's a risk associated with not innovating and not doing those things as well. So I try to evangelize that to my cyber peers. Uh, so right, be really risk averse. You know, something that, that, that really comes up when you said that is if you're not able to move faster than the bad guy when it comes to cyber, it should it can't be reactive anymore which is before it was build our defenses, make it impenetrable. And then we're just going to sit here inside looking out and watching for them. Now we need to be thinking like them. And the, the way that we think like them is to innovate, right? We have to be acting as, you know, playing the bad actor, ethically hacking, thinking through, right? How are we going to apply AI in a bad way as opposed to a good way? Um, I recently went through an ethical hacking course. A friend of mine, Katie Craig, um, also teaches ethical hacking. And we had this discussion about the innovations that are happening with AI and ML. And we all of a sudden had this bing, aha moment where, oh my goodness, all of the good things that we just talked about could be leveraged against us in a negative way. So we have to address the innovations. We have to provide a safe space for people to innovate. doesn't mean that I'm innovating 
in production. It doesn't mean I'm innovating directly in a dangerous situation. I can innovate safely and then move forward quickly with small incremental aspects, right? Yeah, that uh, that actually leads literally right into my next question. Uh, I recently wrote a topic about you know the ability to innovate and deliver continuously and how that can be used from a security perspective. We know you've recently talked about minimal viable minimal viable continuous delivery. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what that is or what that means and why you think uh, you know or what you think the implications that of that may have on development cycles is? Yeah. So. We actually went a step further than talking about it. There was a small cadre of us, a bunch of seasoned practitioners, and we were organically hanging out the DevOps Enterprise Summit. And at first, we were bemoaning the lack of understanding of what continuous delivery is. Then we were all talking about the fact that, well, we can't just complain about it. We need to draw our experiences together. We need to put an example out there. We need to put a stake in the ground to get to a minimum. The reason we're calling it minimum viable CD is that there are lots of different layers. There's lots of complexities. Every situation is specific to its context. And context is king. Can I say king or queen? Context rules? I'll say context rules. Context matters. So if we strip away your context, you can still get to a skeleton. And that's what this minimum viable CD is all about. Continuous delivery is all about. So there's now um, minimumcd.org. And it is the barest of minimum items that we agreed if you're going to assert you're doing continuous delivery. So things like trunk-based development, Continuous delivery means you have to have continuous integration, right? CI, CD. Getting to trunk-based development means making small changes. Mm, If you're making small changes, what's the, the impact on that? Well, it helps you with small testing that's succinct and contained, and that includes the cyber aspects of it, right? So the smaller the change, the easier it is to track it, to understand it, to roll it back when there's an issue. All of that, though, to your other question, what's the implication on the dev cycle? Depends on the architecture. So if you're dealing with existing software, the place to start is understanding the modularity of the software and the dependencies. Getting a view, it's called a deployment allocation. Getting that in place to start and understanding it is the first thing they have to do. I like to jokingly say that you can't put a steel girder through a wood chipper. So the same thing is true with your software. You have to be constructed in a way that you can have continuous integration and continuous delivery. Continuous doesn't mean every minute. It doesn't mean that it is 50 times a day. It doesn't mean that in the government space, I'm going to be (laughs) deploying this onto a, a nuclear warhead 50 times a day. But it does mean that I need to be able to react faster than the bad guy. And that does require refactoring. So there's, there's a lot to it, but let's get to a minimum definition because then all the other layers that are contextually relevant, those will come about in, our, in the different domain spaces as we help folks. Yeah, I love that. I saw that publication. It, it generated a lot of uh, interesting conversation. So that was awesome. You previously talked about the leadership and the practitioners on our DevSecOps title or, or topic, I should say, a moment ago. Do you feel that there's any disconnect between you know leadership and, and practitioners when it comes to DevSecOps implementation? And uh, is it that maybe that middle management or is there something more that could be this, the disconnect or what do you think that is? So everybody, right? This is not pointing fingers at any one group. 
there's a lack of understanding of each other's roles. We don't understand uh, the responsibilities of one another. We don't understand the cognitive load that different individuals are under, their context. So developers don't understand that a C-suite has to make decisions at a very high level using abstracted amounts of of strategic information. At the same time, that C-suite may be getting um, industry guidance, rapid guidance that says they need to execute X word. So they turn around and say, hey, devs, go and do this, thus increasing cognitive load, increasing uh, pressure. Gosh, by not walking a mile in one another's shoes, there's there's a whole lot of well, there's a whole lot of misunderstanding that's happening, and it's regardless as to, as to the level. Middle management needs to understand upwards and downwards. The top needs to understand everything down the chain, so to speak, and the bottom needs to understand as well. Um, when it comes to walking in each other's shoes, we're finding the biggest bang for the buck right now is starting with the leadership because they can become that champion. They can become that buffer on a few of us. I mean, Chris, you're one of them. We've been talking with Gary Groover and Dave Farley to look at their digital transformation, enterprise digital transformation training for leadership to see, is this the right place to start? to help with that because we've got to get to a place where there is trust. Leadership needs to trust their peeps. <laughs> if you're a follower, you need to know that you know the person that's your your leader is worth following. Yeah, I couldn't agree more there. You know, I think uh, without understanding each other's roles and responsibilities and the what's being asked of you, it's really hard to empathize with, with what the inter- other individual is trying to achieve and what they're uh, dealing with. Uh, so I think that's so critical. Another thing you mentioned here is, uh, you know, you talked about FFRDC. We know that you're really passionate about uh, collaboration, you know, with the public sector and, and industry as well. You know, why do you think that's so critical, that partnership? And, you know, not just from a cybersecurity perspective, but also from emerging tech perspective. Oh, gosh, I could talk about this for hours. So, you know, wave at me, Chris, if I need to, to back off this. Coming to MITRE for me was a, an additional amount of freedom. I had always been, for many years, a, a senior technical advisor to my sponsors, to my clients, and they trusted me. And I realized that there's still a degree of separation. When I was working with KPMG, when I was working with Deloitte, no matter how trusted I was, I was still not government. And FFRDC is chartered to be quasi-governmental. So we're not for profit. We Obviously, people get a paycheck, but our goal is not to compete. Our goal is to be objective and guide. What that means, though, is that I can start to act as that broker. I can be in the middle of industry and government and academia and pulling them together because there's a tug of war that happens there. Government wants to be like industry. Industry doesn't necessarily, some of the big players understand, but quite a lot of the middle and the startups don't understand necessarily how government works, what the context is, what the challenges and differentiation is. And academia, well, Chris, you've heard me bemoan this before. In some places, they're ahead. When we talk about um, algorithms, when we talk about machine learning, when we talk about the hardcore mathematics, I think academia is ahead. I think academia is starting to lag behind with their software and systems engineering a bit. And if we are this FFRDC role, pulling them together to create a safe place for there to be experience sharing. We don't need more white papers necessarily. They're good as the, the supporting evidences. 
What we need is to share experience stories. I did this, I failed. I did that, we succeeded. Here's how we tailored what we did. And giving that exchange so that you can actually ask me real time, what the, Trace, you did this. How did that really work? When you tried to, to put, um, uh, give cyber scanning tools to the developers, what happened within that organization? And we can talk about it really openly. And I think that that's a, a great role for, for an FFRDC. Now, you know, I'm with MITRE. What you might not know is that I've been working with SEI for 10 or 12 years now. I'm SEI certified. So I actually didn't know when MITRE knocked on my door that they were an FFRDC. I had already been uh, close with my peeps at SEI. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in the construct that's there for, uh, for having that objectivity. Yeah, I think FFRDCs definitely play a unique role to, to that, you know, to that kind of quasi, I don't want to say government role, but it's, a, it's kind of in between, like you said, gives you a unique, a unique perspective, right? And different, uh, different motivations for, for the way you do things than government or industry. One thing you did say that I want to push back on a little bit, uh, not to be confrontational, but you talked about, you know, maybe some of the small businesses don't understand government, how it works so well. You know, we have seen quite a bit of consolidation in terms of SMBs within the federal, you know, federal space. And, and that's not always necessarily a good thing because there are many large organizations that have been around for quite a while. And when it comes to delivery, there's no shortage of, you know, reports and studies showing that, you know, behind, behind schedule, over cost, et cetera, didn't really deliver. Do you think that small businesses are critical to the, the government ecosystem? And then oh, not only not, well, let me add one more comment. Now, I'm not, not necessarily understanding government, but bringing new ways of doing things, right? Because maybe the old way of doing things is not always the best way of doing things. Uh, so... You're right. And what I didn't want to paint is that we want to indoctrinate small businesses and new startups and new ideas into the old ways of doing things. That wasn't what I meant. Context rules. So if small business understands the context, they can actually make a better recommendation on why they're recommending what they're recommending. So they shouldn't come at it the old ways. Absolutely not, right? The OTAs, uh, the other transaction authorities construct, for example, is fantastic. And it's been around for a bit, but it's really getting a lot of airtime right now. It allows anybody to respond. They don't have to be a big prime that has been pre-approved. The government asks a question. They don't put out a scope of work. They ask a question. They say, come back to me with an answer. And then they look at all the answers and go, oh, this is really cool. I'm going to have six of you. Let's say there were 10 responses. I'm going to have six of you go and go ahead and, and do an experiment for me and come back to me with the experiment. That's where it has to happen. That's the kind of sharing that has to happen. So I actually want there to be more small businesses. I don't want to push out big business. Don't get me wrong. But it has to be a diverse ecosystem. You often hear me talk about diversity, thought diversity, thought diversity. I'm not talking only about what we classify as traditional diversity. I'm talking about educational diversity. I'm talking about a regional diversity. I'm talking about the size of the corporations. I'm talking about the diversity that comes if you're from academia. I don't care if you have a doctorate or if you never graduated from high school. If you bring your credentials to the table and you have good thoughts and they're reasonably supported, let's go with it. I love that. I love that so much. We should be focused on outcomes and and you know uh, accomplishing objectives over uh, over you know presentation or credentials in a lot of cases. So I love that. We've talked a lot about the workforce, you know, without necessarily using that word. Talking about leadership and practitioners and things of that sort. What do you think that organizations can do to facilitate the push for DevSecOps when it comes to the workforce and in broader digital transformation as well? That's exposure. 
upskilling, exposure, and an open place for there to be communications. I know that sounds like all people-y, all human side of things. And, you know, I went into tech because I'm not a people person and I don't like people. And the more that I'm in technology, the longer I'm in my career, the more that I realize that it's 100% about the humans in the mix. So let's provide the opportunity for there to be challenge and response. Let's capture ideas. Let's iterate on ideas together openly. And let's not be afraid of learning fast. I know folks are afraid of saying fail fast. So let's just say, don't be afraid to learn fast publicly. I think that's really the core of all of these pieces. Policy will change pursuant to that. Acquisition will change pursuant to that. But if we have enough folks who are of that mindset, it's a a bit of a cultural revolution, don't you think? Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on. And and although Nikki isn't here, one of her degrees is actually in human factors and cybersecurity. So she would agree with you 100%. And it it made me think of something you mentioned earlier. You talked about the, um, I think it was a smooth sea doesn't create a skilled sailor, right? So that rough sea exposure is is what's going to facilitate the growth of the workforce. Uh, So it's kind of an overarching theme there for sure. The last question I have for you that I ask everyone is what, what does cyber resilience mean to you? Oh my gosh. It means mindset change. Yes. I'm going back to the human part of this. Because it's like all of the dimensions of software and software intensive system delivery, you've got to start with a mindset change. Cybersecurity, I said earlier, it doesn't mean you have impenetrable defenses. The reality is that breaches and attacks happen. So for me, cyber resiliency means the ability to prevent, to respond, and to recover. We're not going to be able to prevent everything. So how do we prepare for that? You know, how do we do our, what's, what does threat protection look like? What does threat modeling look like? Again, lots of dimensions to it, but that's what cyber resiliency needs to be. It's no longer building a wall and a moat. It's understanding all of the different ways that impact can happen and looking at recoverability. How do I architect for adaptability or for durability, right? Lots of tools are available to get started on all this. There's actually, I don't know if you probably know this, Chris, you're in this space a lot. Department of Homeland Security and Carnegie Mellon put out the the CRR, the Cyber Resiliency Review Assessment, to get started. And I think it has a great scaffolding to really help people understand what cyber resiliency is. But I'm going to go back to, it's a mindset change that we're no longer trying to thwart things at the mode. We've got to be thinking ahead. We need to be proactive and we need to be faster than the bad guys. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on with everything you said there. Uh, actually, I know about uh, CRR due to going through Carnegie Mellon CISO program last year. So I got exposed through it, to it through that. And then a lot of the terms you're using, like durability and uh, adaptability, things like that are very prevalent. If you look at NIST 8160, which is, you know, focused on resilience of cyber systems, for example, technology systems. And then also mm-hmm. you're talking, using terms that are really relevant when it comes to zero trust as well, which we're seeing a big push for as, uh, as well when we talk about the moat and things of that nature. Uh, so all great stuff. With that said, thank you for being on. I think this was an awesome conversation. It's always great to chat, Chris. I appreciate the time today. Thank you.